Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. This week's guest is Aurelien Garon. He's the author of a popular new book entitled Hands-On Machine Learning with Scikit-Learn and TensorFlow. His book is aimed at software engineers who want to learn machine learning and start deploying machine learning models in real-world products. As more companies adopt big data and data science technologies, we're seeing an emerging cohort of individuals who have strong software engineering skills and are experienced using machine learning and statistical techniques. The need to build data products has given rise to what many are now calling machine learning engineers, individuals who can work on both prototypes and production systems. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Aurelien Jerome, welcome to the data show. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. So let's start with a little bit of background. I see that you're now consulting on machine learning. But prior to that, uh, looking at your uh, LinkedIn profile, it seems like you came more from the software engineering side. I did. Actually, if, at the very beginning, I studied um, uh, science and in particular, um, you know, microbiology. And then I specialize in computer science. So I actually studied biological neurons before I studied artificial ones. So actually, I came to learn about neural networks while modeling behavior of insects. And that was back in, I think, in 1997 or so. And then I specialized in in software engineering. So what? What part of the software stack were you working on? Were you a web developer? Or? Yeah, so I, I was a software engineer, C++, Java. I was a, a consultant in various companies from uh, you know, banking and, and um, uh, a trainer also. I, I started to teach C, C++, and Java, and actually a few technologies that uh, no one talks about anymore, like uh, Corba or Java Cards. Oh, Corba, oh man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that died away. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But C and C++ are still very important, obviously, even in the deep learning world, right? So. They are. They are indeed. So I guess for the performance. But um, yeah, I, did, I actually wrote a book on C++ at the time. Um, and that was my first book. Um, and so I these, was working... uh, these are like enterprise applications? Yeah. So actually, the first application I, I, I built was uh, backend. I'm mostly a backend person, uh, and I worked on backend system for banking and actually in basket trading and in and, and financial institutions. Um, and, and then I moved on to, to more web architectures. Um, and that's how I wrote my second book on web architectures. And all that was in, I think, about two years in Paris around 1997. And then I moved to Montreal and, and worked on, on some other domains. And it was more, at that point, it was still back-end stuff. So um, 1997, yeah. are we talking about Perl, PHP? or? <laughs> no, actually, for web, at the time, was Java. And, and oh, yeah, and yeah. Some, yeah, I had some horrible nightmares with um, enterprise Java beans, which I'm glad nobody talks about anymore. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that's, that's the stack I was using at the time. And then you co-founded a couple of companies were they mm-hmm. were they basically uh, uh software development uh consulting no, companies I, I, no actually it's a it's a funny story my uh, brother called me one day while i was living in montreal and and said that he uh, he had answered a a tender on um on uh, measuring the the level of gsm uh, networks and and i had no idea what he was talking about but he said you know come and help me build this thing so i did um, and, and we started this company, which was, an, you know, really on telco, initially measuring 
the, the signal of uh, GSM networks. And then gradually we moved into consulting and, and telco and the company grew. It's, it has like about 200 consultants, I think, today um, and in telco and strategy in telecom. That's, that's how it started anyway. And then we built a second one about a year, a late, year later, still with my brother, Sylvain. And that one was more of a wireless ISP. So it's really in the telecom business. Uh, and we specialized in, in student dorms and, and hotels and airports and things like that. Um, and that one is also uh, still booming today. Uh, I think it's grown like 30% every year for the last 10 years or so. Um, but and I was a CTO in that company for ten years, so that's where I spent most of my time. Um, in, and in my these career. are uh, these are. It seems like these are companies based in Paris. Yes, they are. Yeah, they are. They, I, I spent those ten years in Paris working on on both companies, mostly the second one, the the Wi-Fi company. Um, and and ah, yeah, that's ah, the life, yeah. man, Paris. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's it is a nice life. It is a nice. Life. I, 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 it's a bit colder than than uh, San Francisco and and not as sunny. But um, yeah, it does have its perks. Um, and then you ended up at Google as a product manager for YouTube. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I guess I got a little bit bored of Wi-Fi after a while, and I, I wanted to do something else. And and so I I actually I started a little. Um, app, um, iPhone app, a scheduling app with my brother at the time, um, always with my brother, as you can see. But um, it didn't take off that time, so I decided yeah, to join Google, and they, they offered me a, um, a job as a product, the lead product manager of YouTube's video classification team. So um, it's basically the team's goal is to create a, a system that can find out automatically what each video is about. So, um, you know, as you know, Google has a, a huge knowledge graph with a hundreds of millions of topics in it. And the goal is to actually connect each video with all the topics in the knowledge graph that the video is about. So say the video is an interview of Lady Gaga, the, the system must point to interview and Lady Gaga. You know, If it's a Minecraft speedrun, it, it must point to Minecraft and speedrun and nothing else. Um, and that's used all over the place on in, in YouTube, like in, in recommendations and, uh, you know, advertisements and, and just about anything you can think of. Uh, it's super important to know what the topic of the video is in order to better understand what to recommend specifically. So, so far, as we're talking about your uh, background, data in machine learning and data science hasn't come up. But uh, sometime last year, you re reached out to us about writing a book, which is... I think about to come out or already came out. It's called, and you guys, listeners, should check it out. It's a very good book. It's called Hands-On Machine Learning with Scikit-Learn and TensorFlow. So I imagine then at some point you started becoming interesting in uh, machine learning and data science. Yeah. So actually, I, I studied back in 1997, I, I studied neural networks um, in, in, during my studies. And it was initially, as I mentioned on uh, modeling the behavior of insects, um, and and I was completely fascinated. Like e even though artificial neurons are extremely simplified models of uh, biological neurons, which I, which was what I studied initially, um, it seemed to me that you know the biological details really mattered little. Like like a plane doesn't need feathers to fly. I, I think the brain can be modeled using, you know, simplified models of bio biological neurons. Um, so anyway, that's when I studied neural nets. And uh, I also used them at the time for, you know, more mundane tasks like um, 
predicting the acidity, I think, of yogurts, <laughs> giving a number of, of parameters like the temperature, the heating time, and so on. So during my studies, I was, I was really much into machine learning and neural nets. Pretty early on, it was 1997, you know, convolution neural networks weren't even a thing at the time. And we were using recurrent neural nets at the time. But that was just during my studies. And unfortunately, I mean, I love my career, but, but it, it didn't go to machine learning quickly enough. But uh, when I had the chance to work at Google, it really came back. So, so that's, I was really fascinated by the, the models that were built in the team. And we were using, you know, Google Brain to, to build this huge system. And so that's really when my experience, professional experience, um, kicked in. So it's rather recent. I mean, uh, I think in the, if you look at researchers, you'll find researchers who have been, you know, uh, machine learning for uh, working with machine learning for the last, you know, 20 years. You can find researchers like that, most of them more like 10 to 15 years. But what I've seen is like engineers who've been in machine learning you won't find many engineers who've been in machine learning for uh, you know an extended period of time. So I'm fairly new to <laughs> to to the field. Started at Google, which is a good school. So you missed the whole uh, part where it was called data mining. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> well, actually, I, I I heard the buzzword all the time, but yeah. <laughs> so then, no, uh, so 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 with artificial intelligence, by the way, that I, people say you know, say machine learning or artificial intelligence all the time and don't seem to make a difference. Right, 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 right. We can talk about that in a sec. But uh, so you're at Google and then you have this itch to write the book. So what what's the sequence of events here? Did you, uh, at some point when you're in Google, you kind of determined, okay, it's time to move on, but let me write a book first. Or, yeah. was, it, or was it, I want to write a book, so I need to quit my job. <laughs> so it was a bit of both. Uh, I was I was uh, um, uh, a product manager, and I had always been a software engineer. So I felt a little bit far from the uh, technical aspects. I wanted to code, basically, um, and that was the first thing. Um, the second thing is TensorFlow came out, and there was a lot of communication internally in, at Google. And I, I just so you know, on day one, and even before day one, I was using uh, TensorFlow and loved it. Um, and I felt that. Well, you know that there would be this this library is going to have a, a big success. I mean, it's not a it's a pretty safe bet to say that Google's library on machine learning is going to have some success. But uh, I, I really knew it would have some success, and and I felt that it would it would make it for a good book. Uh, the second thing is I noticed at the time I had you know gone through all the classes I could. There are internal classes at Google for machine learning, machine learning. Some great teachers there, but I also you know learned as much as I could from books from you know, Andrew N's uh, Coursera class and everything you can think of um, to, to learn machine learning. And I was a bit frustrated by the, the books. I mean, the books are really good, but they're, a lot of them are from researchers and they don't feel hands-on. I'm like a software engineer. I wanted to code whatever they were talking about. And I often felt that, okay, I got the big idea, but now where do I start? You know, what, how do, what do I code? How do I write this? And, and so I, that's when I thought that I wanted to write a book about TensorFlow, but really hands-on, you know, with, with examples of code and things that, you know, engineers would pick up and start coding right away. The other thing is there were a few books that were targeted at engineers, but they really stayed as far away from the math as possible. And also, oddly enough, I found they were using, you know, toy functions, toy examples of code 
And that was also a bit frustrating because I wanted to, to have actual, you know, production ready code that I, I could start on the next day. So that's how the idea grew, I guess, you know, TensorFlow for engineers with production ready examples. That, that was the initial idea. Yeah, but then uh, when you actually sat down to write the book, you ended up writing an actual reference guide almost for software engineers because it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't just cover TensorFlow and deep learning; it covers uh, machine learning. Yeah, that, that's that's true. That's the other thing is um, I also I, I felt that there was a gap where where um, if you wanted to be uh, to actually start coding for real in machine learning, you had to read like three four books. And some of them would cover the basics, and then some of them would cover more advanced stuff. And you know, if you don't have the map to which to read in which order, it can feel really confusing. So I thought, and that the I think that's even the name I had initially, like a one-stop guide to machine learning for engineers. Um, so so yeah, you're right that there was also this idea of covering as much ground as I could in a, a reasonably sized book. That that was the idea. So for the audience who haven't uh, taken a peek at your book, so distinguish a book on machine learning, a conventional mm -hmm. book on machine learning, from your book, which is machine learning for engineers. So the first thing is you'll, you know, the, there's a lot of example of code, okay, I, and using actual production-ready libraries. I chose two. I initially wanted to use just TensorFlow, um, but then. When I started to write the, the, the basics of machine learning, you know, learning a, a linear regression models, things, things that are fairly simple, um, <laughs> it, felt, it felt that, <laughs> oh, <laughs> are they not simple? <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but, but then uh, once you start uh, writing that at TensorFlow, it's like writing simple things in MapReduce, right? So, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was like, you know, if I'm teaching the basics, uh, I, I, I shouldn't use TensorFlow for that because it's going it, to, people are going to be drowned in TensorFlow before they even understand the basics. So I thought, let's start with a really simpler libraries that, that, that is perfect for, for really beginners. The first part of the book is actually based on scikit-learn, uh, which is, you know, in Python, it's it's one of the leading libraries for, you know, things like uh, all the simple models you can think of. Um, they even have some basic for for neural nets, I believe now. But basically, it's it's mostly for things like um, decision trees and oh, actually all sorts of things. But it's great to start with because the interface is super simple. In in just a few lines, you can train a model, a complex model on, on a load of data, it's, it's great to start. But then if you want to get into deep learning, that's when you need TensorFlow. So the book is really structured in two parts. There's the, the first part with using scikit-learn to learn all the basics of uh, machine learning. And, and then the second part goes into deep learning with neural networks. And that part uses TensorFlow. And then, as you mentioned, along the way, there's a lot of sample code. Yeah, a lot of sample code. I try to also... Um, uh, make it um, available for everyone on the web. So I, I put a put up a, a GitHub uh, project uh, on my page, uh, GitHub slash Ageron, which has all the example codes from the book and um, that you can you know download and, and run right away. They're in Jupyter notebooks, and so you can follow along if you want um, the book example for example. And I got actually a lot of very good feedback on that. I I'm not sure there are tons of, of books out there with that kind of project accompanying it. Uh, so that seems to be very helpful for readers. So what was your goal in terms of, I guess, uh, explaining some of these topics to an engineer? So let's take one 
topic, uh, support vector machine. So do you, or let's say uh, linear regression, right? So, or support vector machine, right? So it's your goal saying here's code and then you can run this code against your data and here's how you evaluate the results. And mm-hmm. here's how you know if the results you're getting are good. Or do you go a step further than that and you explain to them the actual algorithm? Oh, I, I'm both, actually. Yeah. So I try to, to, in each chapter, I typically start with the basics and how to use whatever um, algorithm I'm, I'm describing. So without going, you know, treating the model as a black box, basically, but explaining the, the, the general idea and when you would use it, etc., and then for those who are interested, I explain, you know, how the, the, the guts of the algorithm and, and how it works and why it works. And I felt that that second part was necessary if you really want to go into deep learning. Because really to understand deep learning, you do have to understand, you know, what a linear regression model actually does and how, how, how it is or a logistic model, what it does, what it is. Because you use that all the time in, in neural nets. So there were actually these, these uh, two levels of understanding. Like if you really want to go quickly, you can read the first part of each chapter and, and, and that's it. You'll be up and running. But if you want to understand uh, the maths behind it and the algorithm really in depth, you can read the second part of each chapter. So as you said earlier, so your, your interest really was rekindled by uh, deep learning and neural nets. But then uh, you wanted to uh, provide a reference guide to software engineers. So then a software engineer who goes through your book then, and, uh, and uh, the last part of your book is mostly deep learning and reinforcement learning. Um, exactly. So do they end up then at a place where they go, okay, so now I've read Aurelian's book. Obviously, I can use the other methods that he discussed in the earlier chapters. But since, I've, since he's taught me how to use deep learning, I'll just use deep learning all the time. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I, I, hopefully, I, what, one of the points I, I think I, I get across in the book is that uh, there's there's no silver bullet, right? There's for every problem, there's there's a different model that can be useful, and sometimes a linear model is exactly what you need. If you don't have a lot of data, if if uh, you have uh, you know so, some simple tax or, or or you don't have enough information, then sometimes a simple linear model is is um, what it takes. So. Um, so I wouldn't recommend, you know, for everyone to go into deep learning, even for simple problems. So I think I think they, all the algorithms in the book, uh, that's one of the reasons I, I chose them, um, is that I think they can all be useful in different situations. And so I try to explain the strengths and weaknesses of each one in, in, in the book or when they're best applied. So if you want in, in deep learning and really deep models, you'll do things like, um, you know, image recognition, that's like chapter 13, I think, and or voice recognition, and really that kind of complex tasks. If you're trying to, you know, predict the acidity of yogurt, given a few, <laughs> a few parameters, then, you know, probably an SVM is fine. Or uh, So it really, it really depends. And that's one of the goals of the book is to explain when to use which model. But uh, in many ways, though, the advent of deep learning is great, but then it doesn't really change the nature of what you need to do, which is you still need to know your data. Uh, mm-hmm. You need to know how to handle your data, avoid some common mistakes. And then uh, most people, frankly, Aurelian, might just use an off-the-shelf architecture anyway, right? So, Right. So, so actually, the, ba- I... the basics of uh, what makes a good data scientist in the in light of deep learning i don't think changes right so oh i, I agree with you fully uh, i think uh, one of the things that i think was 
fairly original in, is that in the book, I really start with um, models used completely as black box. And there's chapter two, like chapter one is just an introduction. And chapter two is really, okay, let's go through a project from A to Z and, and see what we need. And let's not, let's not care for now about, you know, how algorithms work, but we'll need a training set. We'll need, you know, what features are we going to build? What happens if features are missing? And, and, you know, really, how does a project um, work? You know, what steps are we going to go through? And until the very end. So by the end of chapter two, you've, you've actually, you know, gone through a whole project with training set, test set, and, and, and metrics all over the place and pretty serious stuff. But you, you, use algorithms as black boxes and i think in many cases that's actually all, all you'll need if it's a simple problem you don't necessarily need to go into deep learning but then once you go into more complex problems uh, for example right now i'm working on on recommender systems with you know hundreds and hundreds of signals um with with millions of of um uh, media items that can be recommended etc then um a a deep learning architecture is is really what you need so yeah, it really depends. But I agree that with you that the the, the core of the um, uh, machine learning project hasn't changed, and it's it's really the same core. So now that you're a cons uh, consulting, uh, doing mm -hmm. a lot of machine learning consulting, uh, how would you describe I your tool set and your approach to a problem? Are you relying on uh, kind of what's in the book in many ways? Uh, actually, I do pull it out <laughs> once in a while because uh, you know can't remember everything by heart. So, but um, yeah, the, the first thing uh, I think I, I I try to do is to get a feel of what I, the problem is, what the objectives are, like to be very clear on what what we're trying to achieve. It's a bit tempting to go and build a model immediately without yeah, because because uh, uh, business metrics are very different from machine learning metrics. Exactly, exactly. You, you can you can spend months trying to to, to tune. Actually, I've seen this happen <laughs> at, at Google. Um, you can spend months working on uh, you know super great classifier that will detect uh, with you know ninety eight percent precision this particular set of topics. But then you 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 launch it and it really doesn't affect your business metrics whatsoever. So you you've you waste you know months. So the the first thing I think is really to understand what the uh, what the business metrics uh, or, or objectives are, uh, how you're going to measure them, and then go and see if you have a chance at um, at improving things. I think one of the tests that's interesting to do is try to manually achieve the task. You know, have a human try to achieve the task. And see if that has an impact. When it's not always possible, but if you can do that, it's an interesting uh, way to test that it's worth spending months building uh, a, an architecture to to do it automatically. If a human cannot, uh, you know, improve things, well, you know, it might be tough for a machine to do better. It's possible, but it might be tough. Now, yeah, that that's be one of the first, I guess, advice I, I would give is really to to make sure that you you know what the business objective is and never to lose track of it. Then, um, then actually, what I've seen happen also is is um, you know, people start improving models, but they don't really have metrics um, to 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 see whether or not things have improved. Like it, it sounds stupid, but one of the very first things you need to do is to to make sure that you have clear metrics that everybody agrees on. Um, and then you can see that and iterate on your model and improve it. But um, you know, it's very tempting to say, "Oh, I, I feel that this this architecture is going to work better," and try to then work on it, but it hasn't improved anything because you know you're working without metrics. 
So um, you wrote your book with software engineers in mind. So what has been the reaction? Before you answer that, actually, as you were writing the book, were you showing uh, some of the early chapters to your friends and, and engineers who were not machine learning experts? Yeah, I was actually. I think there's a, a whole page on on, on uh, <laughs> um, how do you call them? Thanks at the beginning of my book um, because so many people have have read it while I was writing it. There uh, there were people who were good in math but no programming experience or not much programming experience. That's uh, namely my brother who went through every single example and found that he could you know at at the very end uh, program you know pattern recognition or image recognition, which was pretty crazy for him to be able to do that. And on the other end of the spectrum, I've had, you know, researchers review the book. Um, and and so I think really the target was engineers and people I had in mind were my former colleagues in, in my uh, old company. I mean, uh, intelligent people, capable, you know, software engineers, but with absolutely no knowledge of machine learning. And they were really my target. They were the people I had in mind. I'd like to to bring them over to machine learning because there's so much work to be done. The more engineers are trained, the better. I mean, it cannot be just a few data scientists in a company. We're, we're going to have to have a, really a whole lot of machine learners um, in, in companies and engineers can definitely I think it's it's possible for a lot of engineers to 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 go and learn deep learning. Yeah, the other the other important piece here that sometimes people f- uh, forget because uh, right now everyone's talking about deep learning, but you know, data is still key, right? So, in <laughs> fact, labeled data is still key. So, in many of these uh, deep learning breakthroughs, uh, for example, in vision, I mean, without ImageNet, right? So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they exist. Absolutely. So, in fact, I was talking to someone, an expert, a few weeks ago, and he was joking. You know, at some point, all we'll need is people who can uh, <laughs> who can help produce good data sets, good labeled data. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I, I, that's that's um, believe it or not, that's one of the ways that that we we train models is is to. I I, I think that's that's really invaluable to be able to use tools like um, crowdsourcing tools like, you know, uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk or Crowdflower to um, to get labeled data from from humans. Um, humans are still better than machines at producing those data sets. So, uh, yeah, that, that's really invaluable. Actually, at the uh, NIPS conference. Um, but you still in- need, you still need a yeah. lot. You need you need a lot of data for some of these architectures. Uh, you do. Uh, uh, interesting. They're, I think, big, I think they're big. Still, mo- they're yeah. big models, right? Yeah, so, so Andrew Andrew Ng had uh, an interesting point um, at the conference in, in NIPS conference in December. He he basically said that there's still you know a ton of projects that can be built, machine learning projects that can be built on top of existing you know huge data sets, and that will probably be machine learning in the next you know years to come. Will it'll still be supervised learning using big data sets, but gradually we'll, we're going to have to be able to use unlabeled data sets and even to use small data set again, uh, but using transfer learning to, 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 to use uh, huge data sets from elsewhere and reuse them to, to on, on smaller data sets. I hope I'm making sense here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, so, or we, may need, we may need algorithms with slightly different characteristics and capabilities, right? So ones, yeah, that, so, ones that require less data, ones that can incorporate some kind of startup knowledge, right? So some mm-hmm. in, intuition for physics or something like that, mm-hmm. and the ability to do causal reasoning. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So, so I think there's there's still a lot of, of um, options, even if you don't have huge data sets. 
And I think that, that's actually, you know, when I when I um, started working on the book, um, a few people said, you know, are you sure people are going to need this? Because machine learning is only for huge companies that have huge, you know, uh, amounts of data. And I'm not sure that's true. You know, I, I think there are creative ways to use smaller data sets. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. May, you may have to use different techniques, right? So. Exactly, a uh, combination of a bunch of techniques. And that, uh, hopefully that's true and, and machine learners or experts in machine learning won't be replaced by machines anytime soon. I'm, I'm hoping it's still that, <laughs> that kind of area. Oh, yeah, that's coming too, man. Machine learning for machine learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and actually, uh, the our co-chair, our, our honorary chair for the O'Reilly AI Conference, Peter Norvig, talks a lot about that, actually. Yeah, so it's, so it's probably going to happen in, in some subfields of machine learning, like selecting, you know, hyperparameterism. You know, I, I'm confident that that can be optimized. There, there are a number of things that can probably be done much more automatically than they are today. Yeah, and, that's, a, and that's, that's an, a good thing. I mean, I think, so the hyperparameter tuning, that's interesting, but I think there's simpler methods than uh, some of these Bayesian methods that there that people are coming up with. But uh, one one area that uh, in this in this direction that uh, seems interesting is the whole. So you you use deep learning to help you create the deep learning architecture. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Yeah. So, so let me uh, ask you about one of the topics that have that I'm really paying attention to now, and that uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people that I talk to seem to think is increasingly important is just this whole notion of production, right? So this is actually, in many ways, this is in your area because you're a software engineer, right? So the distinction being you create a model in a notebook, that's one thing that data scientists can do well, but maybe that doesn't really uh, get deployed in production. So the engineers have to rewrite some of the work they've done for the production system. So, So people are starting to talk about, you know, Maybe we need to start uh, getting data scientists who have slightly software, a slightly stronger software engineering skills. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. since you come from software engineering and now are doing consulting, what's your take on this whole uh, prototype versus production thing? Well, I, actually, that's one of the things that I really loved about uh, TensorFlow. Um, I, it's a library that I feel is easy to deploy and also easy to experiment with, which, you know, is not always the case. You, you, you often have one or the other, but with that one, you can really, you can express whatever you want in fairly simple terms and then deploy it and really deploy exactly what you've built in production. So I feel that this... No, no, but I mean, uh, I guess I guess the uh, some of the companies may not have it, right? So, so for example, their stack may be something completely different, so... Uh, oh, absolutely! Yeah, no, that, that, I'm, I've had the, the the chance until now to work um, with clients who are just starting with machine learning, and so I get to pick what. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what what tools they they use? Um, so obviously, if uh, it's an, an exi- uh, the company already has a stack and needs to use it, then the data scientists are going to have to work. And also, and also, Aurelian, kind of the cultural difference between the software engineering people and the data scientists. So mm-hmm. da- data scientists tend to write code, and okay, that's let's mm-hmm. uh, it's in a notebook. Let's uh, save the notebook, and so that's how that's how they do version control. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then the software yeah. engineering people are in, over in the Git world, right? So, 
Yeah, yeah. So, so you're right. I mean, those are due to universe or to jobs that need to really talk to each other. Uh, I, I've seen it fairly, you know, working fairly well. I think it's the same kind of mindset. You know, there's less difference, I feel, than, for example, between UX and, and engineering, where I've seen more cultural differences. I feel that when you're talking with a data scientist, it's, it's not too hard to understand each other. From my experience, at least, I've had the chance to work with data scientists that, you know, we can really speak about engineering without any problem. There is a slight tendency, you know, to not really care about all right, you know, the technical details of exactly how it's going to be launched. And, and on the other hand, the engineer will spend a little bit too much time tweaking, you know, what what exactly are the parameters of the pipelines, etc. But overall, I feel... Or, 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 also, I think the engineers, they want to write code for production that doesn't break. Yeah, actually, yeah. The error, <laughs> error checking and everything is, a, <laughs> is an issue. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's also the question of, you know, once the model is up and running... How do you refresh it and, and right. all the 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 the, uh, the technical um, yeah yeah and, and actually this is this is the whole uh, this is how this conversation started is uh, if you mm-hmm. had data scientists who can touch production systems then that becomes a much easier process right. Mm, actually, yeah, you're right. I, I'm thinking of the other way around. Perhaps uh, engineering, um, you know, uh, engineers who can touch the uh, data scientists. Yeah, yeah, which is which is kind of the the direction you're coming from. But but basically, I think it's it, in any case, it's kind of uh, both sides learning more about what each other does. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I've seen I've seen some some funny stories and and um and and you know problems that can occur when people don't talk, but. As I said, I think overall I've seen I've had rather good experience with with these um, these uh, communications. Yeah, you're, um, you're spoiled, yeah. man. You came from Google. Ah, uh, yeah. I guess <laughs> I guess I am. <laughs> That's working pretty well. No, uh, I, I I do have a few anecdotes of you know a, a data scientist wanting to to do you know some kind of quadratic optimization problem that can explode in terms of combinatorial uh, combinatorial. Oh, I can't pronounce this word. Um, and so it can't it can't run in production. But but, you know, mathematically, it's beautiful. <laughs> so um, yeah. uh, let's, uh, without giving away the details, uh, let's uh, uh, give people a teaser about what you're going to talk about at, at Strata London in May, uh, in late May. So uh, title of your talk is How Knowledge Graphs Can Help Dramatically Improve Recommendations. So at a very, right. at a very high level. Uh, so at, at a high level, um, I think what people in recommendation systems, well, at least from my experience, what I've seen is is that um, they rely really heavily on obviously um, collaborative filtering and w- what other people do, which is which is really great when you have a lot of of data. But there are many problems. You know, the, there's the cold start problem when when a new user comes on a system and you don't know anything about that person, or a new video gets uploaded and you don't know anything about that video. What do you do? What do you recommend? If you're a human being trying to recommend something to somebody you don't know, or or trying to recommend a video to to people you know, say it's a new video. I guess, and you have no knowledge and nobody watched it. Well, what you're naturally going to do is is try to find out what it's about. You know, if it's a basketball video, maybe it'll appeal to the basketball fans. So understanding what piece of content is about, it could be videos, but just about anything else, of course, that you might recommend. Understanding what it is about can really help on a lot of cases where you don't have enough signal. And, and there are ways to try to, to gather a lot of signals to understand what a piece of content is about. And that's basically the, the, the topic of my talk and 
how you can use the signals, where they can come from, and, and how to build a recommendation system based on on, um, on the topics. So you're you're so basically this is kind of the uh, the uh, distinction between content based and user behavior exactly. based recommendation. But but in right. in many ways, I think uh, uh, many of the good recommendation systems combine both of them, right? They do, they do, of course. Yeah, I, I'm not advocating, you know, one over the other. It's, it's, it's just both can be useful. Uh, what I like about topics, and if you connect to a, a knowledge graph, uh, hopefully a, 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 one, a knowledge graph that's used by many people across the world, uh, for example, Wikidata, or, you know, there are others, or simply Wikipedia, for example. If you manage to point, to point your topic, your piece of content, such as a video, to one of those topics, then all of a sudden you get a wealth of information that's attached to the topic. So you see with content-based recommendations, you, you try, or some uh, content-based recommendation systems will try to make predictions about what the, the, the piece of content is about, but not necessarily with semantics behind what the labels are attached to, to the content. If you attach topics to content and you know that you know it's lady gaga then well you you might be able to recommend the albums from lady gaga in other words you have a lot of knowledge that is attached to the labels when you use topics so and i don't see you know knowledge graphs used that much outside of google i i really haven't seen my late companies using them and i feel that's a little bit of a waste you know there's a great project called wikidata that has a ton of data structured data with so much information that's super useful. So yeah, I'd like to advocate using it a little bit more. So we talked about supervised learning and you mentioned mm-hmm. un- you mentioned unsupervised learning, but I noticed in your book you had the third kind of learning, which is reinforcement learning. So how much yeah. reinforcement learning did you try to uh, teach people in your book? I was fascinated by, you know, um, DeepMind's uh, achievements with AlphaGo and and uh, also the the uh, Atari games. It's it's just mind blowing what they can do with reinforcement learning. And and so I just for myself, I just wanted to learn. You know how did they do it? And I read the papers, and it was surprise. I, I'm not going to say simple, but it was surprisingly possible for me to do it. I I, I really thought this would be out of this world in uh, in com- terms of complexity. And it turned out no, you can actually explain this in in one chapter. Um, no, it's a, it's so, actually yeah. it's actually very old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. The base, basics of reinforcement learning is super old, and what DeepMind has done is fantastic. But basically, they've just applied deep learning to a very old technique very successfully and very well, obviously. But it, yeah, it, it, it the magic just disappeared. I'm like, oh, I can do this, and and then uh, and then I thought, if I can do it, maybe a lot of people might be interested. And so I, I in the Last chapter of the book, I, I, I also noticed there are not that many books uh, about reinforcement learning and, and not that many books uh, using deep reinforcement learning, which is obviously very recent. And, and so in the book, you, I explain how to basically train a system to um, do what DeepMind has done, like um, to, to simply using TensorFlow, make a, a system automatically learn to play an Atari game using raw pixels and, and not knowing what the ga- rules of the games are. So, so yeah, it's, it's, I find this completely crazy that it's possible, but in this world, apparently it is. So good for us. Speaking of which, if anyone out there, including you, Aurelian, would be interested in doing uh, writing a... Uh, reinforcement learning or deep reinforcement learning book for practitioners make Mm -hmm. sure you reach out to me or one of my editors it's definitely something of interest to us and 
you mentioned earlier uh, NIPS. I also want to give a shout out. We have a new conference series at O'Reilly called the O'Reilly AI Conference. It's happening twice this year, once in New York in June and uh, San Francisco in September. So what we're aiming to be is the Applied AI Conference. So you've got great academic conferences like NIPS and ICML. Uh, so we're, we want to be the industry gathering place for uh, AI. And, uh, and, and of course, deep learning would be a big piece of that, but uh, uh, not entirely everything in our conference. Hmm. Um, awesome. Yeah. So this has been great. I will make sure I link to your book. And if you are planning to go to Strata London, which I hope you do, uh, listeners, uh, make sure you check out Aurelia and Stock. Thank you very much, Ben. For more on the latest in data science, big data, and AI, you should consider coming to our events. There's two event series. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is called the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at o'reillyaicon.com. You can follow Aurelian Giron on Twitter at Aurelian Giron. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.